Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight and our topic is Love and Easter, which is unusually timely for this Bible study. Uh, talking about love and Easter and how they relate and also thinking about Good Friday in there, sort of a complex question of how, what role exactly does love play in, in Good Friday and that's suffering and so on. So we want to dive in there and look at that a little bit. I've missed you, good friends, uh, gone this for an entire calendar month. It was crazy. Uh, but that one time we had a nor'easter on March the 7th that dumped a foot of snow, all everything. And then on March the 14th, I went to the southwest. And then the Wednesday the 21st, we had another nor'easter that dumped another foot of snow. So, so between the northeast and the southwest, we got clobbered for a month. But here we are, thank you, Lord, and uh, talking about love and Easter. And I'll set this up just a little bit before we pray that just don't you think if it had been a modern kind of Hollywood movie or something like that, that when the Lord was going through the crucifixion, he would sort of let the bad guys win for a while and let them feel like, oh, they're strong and they're powerful and they're really making some headway on him. But then... He would come into his superpower and he would get huge and he would crush them. They'd all be talking, you know, and he would show them all who's boss and get rid of that evil and everything like that. Isn't that what he would do if it was a superpower movie or something like that? So what is this like, don't do anything and don't say anything? What was that strategy? You know, just don't do anything, just be tortured and then die. Like, you know, I, I don't get it. Was it loving the bad guys by letting them totally win? Or like where was, surely there was love in this, but where was the love? So that's what we're going to be looking for tonight. And if you'd like to come on that journey, good friends, let's open with a prayer. Hmm. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. We thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world. And we're studying your exit from this world tonight, Lord. Tell us about your love and help us see it in the pages of your Word. Amen. Amen. Sending love to all of those who are out there online and, and getting the audio and on the phone and here in the room. Such a pleasure to be with you again. I miss it terribly when it's not going on. And... Um, so what was going on there? It's the crucifixion, the resurrection definitely seemed like some meaningful message of some kind. The way that some people have taken it, of course, is to say that the love was that he was dealing with sin for everybody for all time, or at least for everybody who believes in him and follows him, like no more sin. Sin's gone. We can't even remember what it is. We don't know. We can't commit it, you know, because he totally took care of it or something. Well, that's obviously not the way that that, that worked because sin still seems to be possible. We look around ourselves, we look inside ourselves, and we still seem to be capable of doing that. So if that wasn't the loving thing, what was the love? Where was he coming from? What was that love? And what was going on in the crucifixion and the resurrection? I want to start with something in the middle of the Bible. We'll be jumping all over the place tonight. But I wanted to read some interesting scriptures, and maybe some of them are not usual things at Easter. Some of them are. Let's start at Psalm 109. We didn't do the sound check. <clears throat> Psalm 109, and I'd like to read uh, those first five verses because this is one type of passage where I get the idea that the crucifixion and the resurrection had something to do with love. We read in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. And so obviously whatever the Lord was doing, he was doing with love. Uh, let's look at those first five verses. And as so often in the Psalms, you'll hear sort of hints of the crucifixion in there. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. Without a cause. Hmm. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. 
Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Hatred for my love. That's a little nutshell, I think, of what the Lord was doing and what was going on there. Uh, that his big crime was that he loved people. And so he was being uh, rewarded with evil for his good and hatred for his love that he was putting up. So passages like this is where I get the idea that what the Lord was doing was an act of love. And uh, obviously what other people were doing in trying to kill him and torment him and so on uh, was not loving and not good. But still, why did he let that happen? And, you know, there's a very big theme. I don't have any scriptures to show you tonight, but we've done other Bible studies on it before, that we are supposed to go through the crucifixion. We're, you know, th this is us, too. This is our story as well. It's not just the Lord did it and it's one and done. Uh, there's something about this story that's something we're supposed to go through, too. So does the story mean, you know, I don't know, be a doormat or just let other people do whatever they want or, so, you know, what, like, what is the message? What, what, what do we get out of this? Let's look at some other scriptures. Let's go to the right to Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is a very challenging chapter and has been taken for a long time to be about the crucifixion. And you'll see why in a moment here. Let's just read uh, verses 7 and 8. Um, yeah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Yes, and there's much more in that chapter. We have done whole Bible studies on Isaiah 53 before, uh, but I wanted to read that because that's sort of the question I'm getting at. Like, why? Okay, yes, that is what happened. But why? Like, why was that the strategy? Why not say anything? Uh, why going like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep before the shears? He's not opening his mouth. What is going on there? Okay, let's read some more love passages, shall we? Let's go to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, the fourth of the Gospels. I want to go to John chapter 3 and read a very famous, probably the most famous verse of the New Testament. Uh, let's, but let's start at 3.14. 3.16 is probably the most famous one, but let's look at 3.14 and start there. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus is saying this. He's having a conversation with Nicodemus about rebirth. And he's saying, it doesn't say why, but he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. Even as the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you remember that story that everybody had a, had a the, the sickness and that if he held up this bronze serpent, everybody who looked at it was cured. And so this is similar, that so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Go on. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hmm. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes, and I think the word that sometimes gets overlooked in that passage, because we think a lot about the word believe, and the only begotten Son, and not perishing and having everlasting life. But I don't know if people fully take into account that this is God's love. God so loved the world. Because there's kind of a story that God was mad at the world or something, you know? And Jesus had to come into the world to set things right and reconcile God the Father to the human race. Uh, but that's not what we read there. God so loved... This was an act of love. Curious. Hey, and this is a fun little trick that somebody showed me one time. That was John 3.16. Was it not? Put a 1 in front of it. What do you got? 1 John 3.16. Let's go to 1 John 3.16. Okay, so you go all the way back to the book of Revelation. Back up a little bit to the first epistle of John. And looks, let's look at 1 John 3.16 and see what that says. 
Hmm. Interesting. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Yeah, that's about Jesus, right? This is how we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our life lives for the brethren. There's a little hint of that idea of like whatever Jesus did, we're supposed to do the same thing. So he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for each other. And let's just read the next couple of verses. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Mm. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I just like that. That's great, isn't it? You know, mm. this is not about the talk or only about the talk. It's also about the walk. We've got to love in deed and in truth. Uh, an interesting juxtaposition of the crucifixion there with this idea of helping people who don't have enough. Interesting. What, what's, what's that about? So that's another little passage that speaks to me about love. I actually want to go back to a reference that we don't often consult here. Okay, go into the middle of your Bible. Yeah, let's say if you're in the Psalms there, turn to the right and go through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes to the Song of Solomon. It's right before Isaiah. And let's look at Song of Solomon chapter 8 verses 6 and 7. There's an interesting statement here. The whole thing is very, very lovey-dovey, even kind of erotic in the Song of Solomon. Let's look eight verses 6 and 7. What do we see there? Chapter 8, 6 yes, and 7. Yes, right at the end there, okay. toward the end. There. Verses 6 set, and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Let's pause there for a second. That's a very, very important statement. That love... So something about the crucifixion is about that, isn't it? If the Lord is love, and He's the embodiment of love, and He's here in this world, and this, and this is a loving act, something about what it demonstrates to us is that love is as strong as death. Mm. Jealousy as cruel as the grave... Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. I like that. Nor can the floods drown it. You would think if it was just a simple fire, there'd be enough water that if you really had a lot of water, it would just extinguish it and it couldn't do it. But not love. It doesn't matter how much you've got. It cannot quench love. And it, the floods cannot drown it. Go on. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. What I take that last phrase to mean is something along the lines of like, doesn't matter, every, everything you own is not as valuable as love, right? Like everything you own is not nearly as valuable as love. If you tried to give that for love, it, no, it, no, it's not nearly enough. Um, so love is as strong as death and many waters cannot quench it. Important statement. Let's go into the New Testament. I want to go to Paul's epistle to the Romans. So you go through the Gospel of John and Acts, and we go into Romans. Let's look at chapter 8 there. Another interesting passage here. Let's start at verse 36, because this relates back to what we were reading in Isaiah 53 there. I say we're not only in terms of parts of the Bible, but philosophically, we're sort of jumping all over the place tonight. I'm, I'm rusty. Well, what can you do? Okay. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So there's another hint of how we go through a crucifixion. And yet, in fact, it's all day long, you know, like there's a lot of this. It's not just a one shot deal. Go on. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yeah, okay, so right there, you've got the idea, right? Like verse 36, isn't that kind of Good Friday-ish? And verse 37 is a kind of Easter-ish, right? Uh, that we're killed all day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter, and yet we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I like this little last couple of verses here, as you may have heard me say before. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yes, that's where it is. It's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's not two separate people or something. The love of God is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I like that kind of list. Doesn't it give you a little feeling about, okay, this is what we're talking about. Like the Lord goes through the crucifixion and like there's nothing more powerful than love, right? Even all those negative things are not as powerful as love, and they will not be able to separate us from the love of God. Oh, another, wow, let's do it now. Shall we? Let's turn to the right and go to 1 Corinthians. And another favorite passage in here. I just love this. Don't get tired of it. Uh, let's start at verse 24 here. There's a lot in 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of those go-tos like Luke 24 uh, there's just a lot in here, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start at verse 24, and we'll read quite a bit of the rest of this chapter, I think. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. This is about Jesus, that's right. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Ah, He's reigning until he puts all enemies. Well, wait, that sounds a little more like what I was talking about with the superhero thing before. All enemies under his feet. And yet it looks so much on the outside like he wasn't doing that in the crucifixion. And then what does it say in verse 26? The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Oh, death itself is going to be put under his feet. Death is going to serve him in some way. The last enemy that should be destroyed is is death. Mm. All right. Uh, and look at verse 31. I love that verse. I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Yes. Unfortunately, what we're really talking about is a program of daily crucifixion. <laughs> it's mm. not just a one-shot thing. And then you get this glorious riff that starts in verse 35 there. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Okay, that's a sort of Easter question, isn't it? Like what happened? What is that resurrection? How are the dead raised up? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Oh, what do you mean? Go on, Paul. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. Oh, so you don't stick a piece of wheat in the ground. It's just like a little seed that goes in, right? But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Okay, and there's an interesting little riff here. Let's go through this. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. And then it starts sounding like we're back in the creation story. Listen to this. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. And I can't help but think, Swedenborg says that all the things that were written in ancient times were written in correspondences. And look at that sun, moon, and stars. Isn't that interesting? And there's three of them. And what it's saying is, what happens to the dead? Well, it's saying, well, the sun has one nature and the moon has another nature and the stars have another nature. And isn't it talking about like three heavens, three different ways of being and so on? Because look at what he says in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The something about whatever this grain thing is, how it turns into, you know, and it grows up and it does something different and it has different natures, you know, like people is one thing and animals is another, and fish and birds and so on. And, and so something about this is also the case with the resurrection of the dead. Tell me about that. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Mm. In the Old King James, there's no word body there, which is interesting. Hmm. Go on. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Wow, okay, so wasn't the Lord's crucifixion like, you know, weakness or, or passivity or, or something? It's just interesting, but raised in power. Okay, go on. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Bingo. And then in case you need it even more, almost Swedenborg-esquely clearly. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Thank you. A nice declarative sentence. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so, and then it says, it's not the spiritual that was first, but the natural and afterwards what is spiritual. And it goes on. Now, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is interesting to me because there's so much of a thought out there, not everybody thinks this, but there's a big thought in Christianity that your physical body comes back. I mean, all this stuff about don't get cremated, you have to be, you have to face east, and they actually had the headstones to keep you from rising up out of the grave early because, hey, don't go start walking around yet, you know? Got to wait for the Lord to come and, and everything. And so they, these teachings have really shaped things, and yet what does that say? It says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he just said there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. Two different things, and yet we go... Oh, you mean there's a natural body and a natural body, right? Oh, uh, you know. So, go on. Uh, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Yeah, the body is corrupt. How is, how is a decaying body supposed to inherit the glorious state of the resurrected spiritual body and everything? Go on. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. Yes, now our dear reader is going to start singing. Go on. <laughs> in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, <laughs> at the last trumpet. I'll stop there. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. Yes, and I think that trumpet is the moment of our death. Everyone has that trumpet at the time of their death. And go on. What does it say there? For this corruptible must put on incorruption, mm. and this mortal must put on immortality. So this is kind of a little essay on why we go through death, why physical death. Like we have this corrupt body, we're going to get a, a body that doesn't decay, and that's why we need to go through this. And in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. We'll find ourselves in this indestructible spiritual body. And same applies to Jesus only more so. Go on. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. And here you go. Drum roll, please. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, the last enemy is death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Yes, in the Old King James, O grave, where is your victory? I'm sure that New King James is more accurate there, but um, what a great statement. Death, where's, that's the worst you could do? Transform me into an everlasting spiritual being? Really? That's your worst shot? Uh, death, where is your sting? Hmm. Grave or Hades, where is your victory? Yes, so there's a lot in there, but do you get the sense that this is an essay about why we go through what we go through? Even why do we go through physical death? You know, what are we doing here in this world? Our bodies decay, we go through physical death. What's that all about? And why did Jesus go through that? And why was it important that he went through it in the way that he did? Well, so a big part of that obviously is, and you see it, don't you? There he is in the physical flesh and he dies. And then uh, on the third day he comes back and he's walking through walls and he appears and, he, and he's in a different state. They hardly recognize him uh, because he put off what was corruptible and put on what was incorruptible only way more so than we ever do. Okay, all right. And, uh, and okay, um, let's go back to John, back to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Read a few more verses along these lines. 12, 24, you can see why this would come to mind. Let's start at verse 23 in John 12. Okay. 
when you look at it, you know, the idea that the Lord is the Word made flesh, then everything in Scripture would be to some extent about the crucifixion. In fact, did he not, did the Lord not chide the disciples on the road to Emmaus for not realizing the crucifixion was going to happen? Like, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets said. You know, haven't you been reading the book? Uh, didn't you understand this is how the story ends? Look at this, 12:23. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Ah, that's important. So he's going to be glorified. So it's not simply about his relationship with his enemies, but there's something transformative that's happening to him. And then what does he say? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Yes, though that's very much the same thing that Paul says, isn't it? A grain of wheat and that, you know, that's going to be transformed. Go on. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Mm. And I like that verse 27 down there. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Mm. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Yes, so that, that is about the transformation that the Lord was about to experience. Go over to John 15, if you would. And another very well-known scripture here, 15 verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Yes, greater love. Okay, so the laying down of the life is actually a great act of love. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. But how did that work? How did what the Lord was doing, how was that for his friends? They had all, most of them in most gospels, had run away and everything. Still not exactly clear on what's going on there. Let's go to the left and go to Luke chapter 9. Hmm. Let's just read verses 23 to 25 there in Luke 9. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Don't like that daily. And follow me. Like to edit that out. Yep, go on. <laughs> for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Yes. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Yes, listen to that. That's very, very important. I think that's getting to a key of what we're looking at tonight. That there's a set of priorities and you could gain the whole world and lose yourself or your soul or something. And, and uh, that would be ridiculous because didn't we read in the Song of Solomon that uh, your, everything you own would just be despised in comparison with love. Love is way more important than all those possessions. And we have to have those priorities straight. Okay, I think the time has come. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Why would we go to Matthew 4? So turn to the left, Matthew 4. This is the beginning. This is the other end of Jesus' ministry. It was just a short little three years that he was uh, having his ministry, as far as we can tell from the scriptures. But uh, at the beginning of his ministry, right after he was baptized, what happened here at the beginning of Matthew 4? This is important. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mm. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. That's right. And there are three exchanges between the tempter and Jesus. where he's, If you're the Son of God, do this. And, and he says, No, I'm not going to do that. And then he says, oh, well, if you're the son of God, then cast yourself down because it says in the Psalms that he'll give his angels charge over you and, and you won't dash your foot against the stone. And the Lord says, don't tempt the Lord your God. And then look at verse 8. This is particularly poignant here, I think. 
Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All the kingdoms, exceedingly high mountain, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The devil showed him, all right? And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That's a crucial moment. Like this is the whole package you're going to get. But what do we read? If you, the whole house, even the whole house of the whole world, is that worth love? Would that be a good trade? You know, I'll trade away my love because I'll get all this stuff. No, uh, even the power and everything. And of course, Satan's lying. He doesn't, you know, like he can't really deliver on that. Uh, you know, it belongs to the Lord. Uh, but, and what does Jesus say in verse 10? Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Mm. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So I think in a nutshell, this little image at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and being tempted, is a picture of these temptations that Jesus went through throughout his ministry. And I think these same issues were still operative at the end there. You know, what does it say? Love is as strong as death. Like I think there was still a temptation going on about, see, okay, here to explain this. Maybe you've heard me say this before, or maybe you've read this in Swedenborg, but I've become increasingly fascinated with Swedenborg's story about the four loves because it just seems so basic and seems almost too simple. But when you think about it, it really makes a lot of sense. There are four basic loves, love of God, love of the neighbor, love of the world, and love of self. And love of the world is all kinds of materialism and, and so on. And so the whole deal is just which gets the priority. If love of the world, you know, what if you profit the whole world but you lose your own soul? Not good, says the Lord. That, that's not good. That's not going to help you. You want to have that love of God at the top. So that's what Satan's offering him. He said, hey, Ban out and worship me. I can give you a love of the world. I can give you a love of self. You would be a huge, glorious figure and everything. I'll give that to you if you bow down and worship me. And the Lord says, no, you've got to serve the Lord. Him only shall you serve. Because he's about love, about love of God, about love of the neighbor. When those two things are primary, all's good with the world. Then you can have love of the world and you can have love of self, but they ride in the back seat. They're not driving any longer. They're terrible terrible drivers <laughs> don't let them take the wheel but if they're sitting in the back they're they're fine you can get them to calm down wear their seatbelt eventually and you know they'll go along on a ride and they can even be helpful sometimes or funny or whatever but uh, you don't want them taking over your life so what was the lord doing he was doing something with those loves during the crucifixion what was he doing okay let's look at psalm 63 Go to the middle of your Bible, Psalm 63, verse 3. This is an interesting little clue, I think. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Now that's just a little phrase. It could whip right past you. But your loving kindness is better than life. Like if you loved God and you loved the neighbor so much more than life in this world or your own physical well-being or whatever, isn't that a condition is talking about there? Your loving kindness is better than life. I prefer it to even being alive. If my life is not going to be about that, I don't want it anymore. Swedenborg describes a condition, I'll get to that in a bit, but he describes a condition in which uh, you are so focused on loving God and loving the neighbor that you would rather die than leave those things. Um, let's look at Luke chapter 6. This will be very similar to some other things we've read tonight. We're back into the New Testament, jumping all over the place. I want to read at some length here. Luke 6, verse 20. And think about the Lord's desire to do good and so on. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, 
Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Mm, here's a crucial point. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Yes, that's a blessed condition when you're being hated and persecuted and so on for the Son of Man's sake. And what does he say to do? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Mm. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Yes, the prophets went through some intense times as well. And then listen to these woes that you don't hear in Matthew in the same way. But listen to these next verses here. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Right, right. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Uh-oh. Woe, and listen to this one. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Right. I mean, that's been my strategic plan, the 10-year strategic plan. Everybody say nice things about me. And yet the Lord is saying, no, bad strategic plan. You need to have some enemies. And then he talks about enemies a little more. Go on. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Mm. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And then you got the golden rule. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. And then we get another nice little lecture. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Mm. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. I thought I was going to get points for that, but apparently no points for that. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Yes, so let's end with verse 35 there. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Amazing. Just amazing teaching. So isn't this a sense in which, and that dying daily, to have this practice of being good to the, you know, unthankful and the evil, loving the enemies, loving people, doing good to people who are persecuting you and everything. That's got to have something to do with what's going on in the crucifixion, and it also has to have something to do with how we are supposed to go through our crucifixion. Uh, go to John 13, verse 1. This is such a great little phrase. I don't know, this is ringing in my head today, and in a way, I think this is a key to what we're talking about but then there are 40 different keys. But anyway, 13 verse 1 in John. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Ah, that means that the crucifixion is about to happen. You know, here comes his physical death. Knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's it. He loved them to the end. He didn't stop, right? That little phrase. Now, it's all sort of building up to this stuff that's going to happen, and you're going to get these, uh, you know, much action in the next uh, verses and a lot of things that the Lord says at the end of his life and everything. But that little phrase there, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think that's a little statement of something very important that he achieved during the crucifixion that he stayed in a position of love to the end. And that was not easy, 
when people are being all evil and accusing him and torturing him and keeping him up and, and all, all that stuff. It, it, I don't think that was simple or easy and all the hells rose up. But he did it. He loved them to the end. And just two more scriptures I think I want to read. Revelation 1, so turn to the very end of your Bible. This is a much misunderstood phrase, but let's see if we can see it in a different light. 1 verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, Mm. to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Yeah, now people have mistaken that to mean that, oh, he loved us and he did this loving act of getting rid of sin for us because of his physical blood, on the, even though there's no blood particularly recorded in the crucifixion, but, but washed us from our, our sins in his own blood. But uh, from a Swedenborgian perspective, this is about uh, the truth. Uh, divine truth is his blood, the truth from love, that warm red you know, truth, not just water, but, but that warm red truth that he gives us. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. He gave us that divine truth that can help to cleanse us. So he is the one who loved us. The crucifixion was an act of love. And look at 12, Revelation 12 verse 11 that talks a little bit. uh, That's where you get the woman clothed with the sun and you get this dragon and so on. And then the followers of the Lord. and, and, And in verse 11 it says how they overcame the dragon. How do they do that? And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. There's a little hint to the fact that the blood, the word of the testimony is, is sort of a truth expression. So blood there is also truth, you know, uh, uh, like it's the word of the testimony is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing, right? So the blood of the lamb is spiritual too, that the blood of the lamb is that divine truth from the Lord and by the word of their testimony and very important statement about what they did. And they did not love their lives to the death. They did not love their lives to the death. So Swedenborg, in discussing this passage in Apocalypse Revealed, talks about what that means. What does that mean? They did not love their lives to the death. He says that our own life, the life that we start out with in this world, is a life of loving ourselves more than God, loving the world more than heaven. That's our own life. And the main thing that these good people achieved was they didn't love that to the point that it killed them. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they loved something more than that. And when Swedenborg's talking about it, he says this rather uncharacteristic thing that he says that these are people who would rather die than give up loving God and loving their neighbor. They'd rather die. And I think what has to obtain to, to get into that situation, because I think that's exactly the state that Jesus was in more thoroughly than we ever could. He had an infinite soul and everything going into it. Uh, how do you get into that state? You have to realize. See, there's a lot of seduction and falsity in this world, isn't there? And there's a lot of things that tell you like an addiction or something will tell you, oh no, I'm when you really feel alive. I'm, I'm the most exciting thing. I make you interesting. I help you in social situations or, or whatever it might be. You know, uh, that this is what makes your, your life. This is the thing you want above all else. Whatever that might be, all kinds of different worldly and, and self-centered things. Uh, over time, if we're blessed too, we are given many opportunities to see that those things are not life. They're actually death. They actually take us downhill. They make us less useful. They're not good. When, and, but you have to be in a pretty advanced spiritual state to really understand that love of God and love of the neighbor is life itself. And when you realize that those things are life itself, you even ultimately get to a state in which you would rather die than step off that home base. You don't want anything to take you away from that. Why didn't the Lord take revenge on his enemies at the crucifixion? Oh, he would have been stepping off 
of that love that he knew was life itself. No, no the whole do the power thing, knock them all down, choke them. No. That would be loving himself, wanting that power, uh, you know, that worldly power or to impress people or his ego or something like that. And he knew that was death. And even if everything's coming at him, all hell and all these angry people mocking him and, and hating him and everything, uh, knock yourselves out. I am not leaving this love. I'm going to love to the end and you can take my physical life because it's a small and cheap thing to me compared to this thing that I love on the inside so go ahead you know you can have, you can have my old raggy body I don't care about that you know it's that love of God and the love of the neighbor that's what life really is so when he did that, and he did so astoundingly well, and you see, that's how it's a model for us. Hey, this is how it's done. Let me model that for you. He had to be so focused, like, okay, my body's screaming and I'm dying. I don't care. I'm interested in love. I'm going to stick with the love thing. I'm not going to waver off to the side here. He passed the test the first time the devil did it in Matthew 4. You want to be lifted up and look at all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down? No. How about during the crucifixion? No, thank you. Still not interested. It's not a good deal. Uh, everything in your house is despised in comparison with love. Love is actually stronger than death, and there's no water. There's no amount of falsity flooding in from hell that can extinguish it. No water can quench it. No floods can extinguish it. We read there, didn't we? So I think that's the situation that the Lord was in, and that's what he was modeling. It's what he wasn't doing that was so powerful. When it says as a sheep or a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep or a lamb in the language of correspondence is, is a goodness, you know, it's not a predatory, ravenous, crazy, insane, you know, wolverine or something like that. Nothing against wolverines, but I'm just saying uh, the Lord used the imagery of the lamb and the sheep purposely uh, because he was going to be that goodness to the end. He read that in the Old Testament. He knew his marching orders. He knew how he had to approach this thing to just keep being loving and do nothing that is not loving. Even if the whole world is arrayed against you and everything's going crazy and you're about to die, we're staying the course. We're, we're not changing. We're not giving that up. Because he realized more than anybody on earth ever has that that is life. So I'm going for life. It looks like I'm dying. It's sown in corruption. It's sown in weakness. But it's raised in glory. It's raised in power. Uh, because he realized, oh, the life of the body is not what I'm about. It's not what I've been doing here. That's not what's most important. The most important thing is that inward, is that love of God and the love of the neighbor. That's what I'm all about. And so as we go through our lives, uh, I don't think we'll ever get to the Jesus level. You know, that's pretty impressive uh, what he did. And I don't know that the Lord will ask us to be martyred in exactly the way that he was or whatever. But I think we die daily when we go through that, when we give up that life of self, that life of the world. And it doesn't mean you go around in the vow of poverty or whatever. It just means that when push comes to shove, are you going to hurt people to make more money or are you going to make less money and be nice to the people? Well, you make less money and you'd be nice to the people. Or, or whatever, you know, it's just those priorities of like, is it more important this or that? No, I will, I will give up. Lay down your life for your friends, you know. That's what he modeled there. And that weakness, it's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. That apparent weakness was unbelievable divine strength, wasn't it, friends? incredible divine strength to stay with love no matter how loud hell gets 
Just stay with the, stay with the love. Be transformed by it. The disciples couldn't handle it for the most part, and they, they fled and scattered and everything. Some women were still there. It seems like John was still there in one gospel. But, um, but the Lord was going through something uh, and showing us how it's done. That's how it's done to realize and to be there. You've got to realize, hey, the flesh is nothing to write home about. There's something more important than that. Uh, love is as strong as death, and he loved them to the end. So how did the Lord show this love exactly on Good Friday and at Easter? By not being anything other than love not being violence, not being revenge, not being ego, not being escapist, not being numb. You know, just stay with the love, even if it hurts, just, just go right through it. And when you finally realize that loving the Lord and the neighbor is life itself, that the Lord's life is in those loves, we get to that amazing point where we'd rather die than give them up. Thank you, good friends. Those are my Easter thoughts for this year. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one God of heaven and earth, the divine love and the divine wisdom. To all eternity, Lord, we may not know everything about what you did when you were here in the world, all the imagery, all the correspondences, but we glimpse your love, Lord God, and we thank you for it. And we thank you for helping us through our dark times. We pray for your transformation we pray for your wisdom and light to help us understand that it's not about how we look or how our health is or, or whatever, that it's about you, it's about our neighbor. Above all, those other things are servants and they're good servants, but let them not lead. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing and enduring example. And we thank you, Lord, on this Good Friday and this Easter. Amen. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. It's an important step to getting to that amazing state.